Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. And remember, please, that this is our last Sunday here at this location. Our new location is going to be right behind um, Magnolia High School. Um, you can go to our website, evergrace.org. There's a direct link on the, that will take you to Google Maps. And also on our church app, if you download that, if you go to evergrace.org, you can find our church app. And on the church app, uh, you can stay connected with what we're doing. You can give online. And you can also join our Bible school groups. Um, there's different groups that we're creating there for, for the neighborhoods. And um, also there, right on the front page, when you download our app, you're going to see... Um, our new location, just tap on that, and it should open up your Google Maps. So Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 22, I re- want to read this together with you. And Lord, I just want to pray, God, that you'd speak to us through your word. We thank you, God, that your word is blessed. It speaks to us, Lord. But by the word you created this universe that we live in, you spoke, and it came into being, God. You can speak into our life. And you can create things by your word that did not exist there before. You can create understanding and illumination of who you are, God. And pray that you bless these words that we share in this message for your name's sake. Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to just say a few things about our strength. And um, just all week I've just been thinking about this, um, this topic of strength and and how it relates to the love of Christ. Yesterday we got news um, that one of my wife's co-worker's daughter uh, attempted to take her life. She's 20 years old, and they live in a very affluent family. Um, life is good for them. And this young person um, really started to doubt her value and her significance, and she just had no more strength to live. She said, I don't have any more strength to live. I just don't have any more strength to face what I'm facing. And I don't know if you've ever been there. I have. Um, there's times in our life where we just say, I can't do this, man. I just can't do this. You know? And I think that's a very good place, actually, for us to wind up. It's okay when a teenager or a young person tells us that. When our spouse tells us that or when we're in a work environment where we are just, we cannot continue. Or maybe even in a church environment where we're in, a, we're in a church and it's just, it gets too tough. And there's a, there's a strength crisis. And, um, and I think that we live in the woodlands in the, in the Magnolia area. It's very, it's all about, um, it's all about um, I think, achievements. There's a lot of achievement here. There's a lot of hit, trying to hit the mark. And a very young, at a very young age, we have, we have our teenagers that are faced with just a lot of pressure that, um, and expectations for them that, you know what, like, you know, before you get to college, you need to have these courses done and you need to be, at, you know, your, your, your grade, grade average needs to be right here at this spot. And I think kids wake up sometimes with just a deep sense of anxiety and just feeling that they're not making it. And, you know, like, and, and I think if you look at our youth today, and, and it's funny because it, it's not funny, but it's just, it's tragic that in the woodlands and in this area, one of the most affluent areas, um, we can see the highest suicide rate for, for teenagers. And that, that makes me ask, as a pastor, um, where, are we, where are we failing as a church? We're, we're one of the most churched areas in the United States. And I don't mean this in a critical way. I'm just asking a question. How are we failing as a church 
to reach young people, to reach teenagers, to reach the 12-year-olds, the 11-year-olds. I mean, 11-year-olds today are facing questions that we never faced ever, philosophical questions. And I think about it, sometimes I think about it at night, and I think, Lord, yeah, it's like 11, last night it was 11.30, and I was just thinking, you know, there's a teenager somewhere that's, that's just struggling with their identity, gender-wise and in every, in every way. And Lord, that you would speak to that teenager, that this person would be, would understand their love, this love and the significance they have and the security that they have in Jesus Christ. And I think as a church, if, if we are not moved, if we're not disturbed by, by the broken um, place, I, I didn't want to, I don't want to start off, this kind of sounds depressing, but I want to share my heart. Like I think as a church, if we are not disturbed by, by the things that we see, uh, this is Halloween, right? And, and if this doesn't disturb us in some way, then I think we need to ask ourselves the question, um, am I a person that understands the heart of God and can I be moved for my neighbor? And we just had this time of prayer before the church. And I know it's a little awkward. People are coming in and we're praying and stuff. But I think it's just really important that we would just ask the Lord. There's a poem. It's a beautiful poem. And I'd like to, I'm going to, try to get it sometime and read it to you, but it, it starts off like this, disturb me, O Lord, disturb me. And I like that because when we know God, we have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable, with the cross. And, and here's a man, I, I, you know, I read about, I read this this morning, and I'm thinking this is the kind of young man that you would find in the woodlands, like in this part of Texas, right? Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 22, and I'm gonna read it to you. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his way, one individual ran up and knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher. It's funny, right? Good teacher. What a, what a term here. Good teacher. What must I do so that I might inherit eternal life? Isn't that the cry today? You know, I don't think the generations, I think if you were to look at your ancestors like generations ago, I don't really think it'd be much different than what you see today. The toys are different. The trends are different. The clothing is different. The technology is different. But I think what doesn't really change is the questions that people are asking. When we were in Western China, that Muslim part of China, which people don't even really know about much about, it's called um, it's the Uyghur people. And they're a Turkic people group. They have a Turkic language. And when I was there, I never felt like I was so far away from my own country. And, you know, you talk to people with a translator and the questions are the same. Why? Why? What must I do to access this place of eternal life? Or what must I do to have the perfect wife or the perfect husband? What must I do to have that, that six-figure income? Or what must I do to, to be respected? Or what must I do that my parents would love me? Or we could put anything in there. And so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? I like how he just, at first, always addresses our concept of who Jesus Christ is. Like whenever we pray, the first thing that God wants us to understand is who he is. And I think that one of the... Again, I think as a church, as a, as a church in the world, the world church, I think we've failed sometimes, in our, we've really failed in our mission, and we've given people a job to do instead of giving them really their true identity. What is their identity? Who are you in Christ? And I think if, if we can be faithful to teach who we are in Jesus Christ, I think people are going to understand what to do, and we won't have to be in a crisis of just instructing people what to do or behavioral modification. And he said, why do you call me good? There's none good except God alone. Verse 19, you know the commandments, right? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud and honor your father and mother. 
And verse 20, he said to him, teacher, all these things I have observed from my youth. And Jesus, look at these verses right here. This verse 21, I love this. Jesus looking at him, loved him. Mm-hmm. Jesus looking at him, loved him. Man, that's just, I love that. I was thinking about that this morning. Jesus is looking at this troubled young man. Think of yourself when you've gone to God and said like, God, what must I do? What are, where am I failing? Where, where am I missing the boat here? Why am I not happy? Why don't, why don't I have answers to prayer? Why do I continue struggling with this sin or this temptation? Why can't I get this out of my mind? How come I can't get healed from a, a broken relationship that was just plaguing, it's plaguing me today? Why can't I be delivered from the voice of my alcoholic father 20 years ago? How can I, and you know what Jesus, Jesus does here? He just, he's looking at him and he loves him. This is huge. I want to talk about three things this morning. The weight of his love, the strength of Christ's love, and being perfected in Christ's love. The weight of his love, the strength of Christ's love, and perfected in Christ's love. And Jesus here looks at him and loves him and said, I love that because 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, kind of, I was going over this with a Zoom call with a bunch of Ukrainian teenagers overseas. I said, every time that you talk to God, it's 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, God is listening to you in an atmosphere of love. He's like, and I think that sometimes when we pray, when I was a young person, I looked at, you know, I pray and I'd be so aware of all my shortcomings, all my failures. And I still do that as a pastor, you know, all of everything that I'm not meeting up to, those standards that I don't think I'm hitting in my own mind. And 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. When God, when you speak to God, he's like, I am believing in my son for you. We got, God has got our back. He is on our side. I like this, I like this quote, and I quote it often, but when, I believe it's Billy Graham that said this, that when we get to heaven, we're going to be amazed at how good God really is. And I think the only regret that we're going to have is that we didn't trust God for more. Not the name, like, God, give me this, but it's like, Lord, I want to trust you, because like in Psalm 16, um, David said, I've... I believe in the goodness of God. I believe that I will, I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. I think if somebody struggles with suicide, they need to take that verse. Or if you're, if you're, at, the end of the, if you're at a point where, where you think you're going to die, just remember that verse. I remember a lady years ago in our church back in Baltimore struggled with suicide. I don't know why I'm talking about suicide today, but she was struggling with suicide. And um, me and one other brother were, were asked to help counsel her. And God gave us this verse in Psalms in Psalm 16. I believe that I shall see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And today she's doing great. Because if we could just discover the love of Christ. And Jesus looking at him loved him and said, you lack one thing. One translator puts it this way. He says, one thing lacks you. And I don't know, I'm not a Greek, theo, uh, I'm not a Greek scholar. But it's interesting because he says that you're lacking one thing. And then he and then he rattle, and then he like lists off like go sell all that you have give to the give the proceeds to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me and I think that if we don't read that carefully we think okay the thing that I lack is I got to sell everything but that's not the point the point that he lacked was understanding that when Jesus was looking at him he's loving him when, like we could be in the middle of our day when God looks at us he is proud he sees his son he sees the blood of Jesus Christ on us he is. He is, he, is, he is boasting of us. And, and, and I think that when we begin to understand as a young person, our value, our significance 
in the love of God, we don't sell ourselves to the world. We're not selling ourselves to the highest bidder. We're not selling us to someone that is trying to sell us on a scam about a dream that, that, we, that, we, that we wanna have in our life. And, and Jesus here looks at him and loves him. And he says, come and follow me. You know what the, the young man here was missing? Was that the love of Christ, the love of Christ. And he says, come and follow me. In verse 22, it's sad. I wish the story ended differently, but he looked gloomy at the statement and went away sorrowful because he had many possessions and he walks away. That's a sad story. I want to compare that with the call of Matthew the Levite, who was a tax collector. I'm going to look at that in a minute. But when Jesus looks at him and loves him, he's loving that man more than all of his obedience, more than all of his lack of obedience. He's loving him for more than all the accomplishments or the lack of accomplishments. Jesus loves this man's soul. Jesus loved this man's soul. We live in a world today that makes merchandise of people's souls. Not their, only their bodies, but their souls. And this is, a, this is when we talk about spiritual human trafficking, that's what's really happening in the atmosphere, is that people's souls are being bidded for. They're being, they're transact, they're being transacted um, they're being bought and sold because the world is never going to show you your true value. It's going to portray something to you, something that you think you love, something that you think you really need in your life. And when we go for that carrot on the stick, we, it's, always, we always, it's always a scam. It's, always, it's, it's just disappointment and regrets. Ask anyone that's ever been in the world just giving themselves up to whatever, and they're always going to come back and say, it's not what you think it is. <laughs> it's never that way. And it always comes back like, it just comes back to bite you, and you're just, and it's like, it's never great. And the, but the problem is, is that we never remember the pain of sin. We never remember the bondages and how things were in Egypt, right? And, and, and it's like, you know, but here Jesus here is looking at him and is loving him beyond all of his obedience and lack of obedience. It's like Jesus loves him. He's looking at him and he's loving him. Jesus loved his soul. Three things here that we can see. Number one, love means value and worth. When, someone lo- when Jesus loves us, he's putting a value on your soul. He's putting a price. He's putting a price tag on your soul that the world could never, ever afford. Right? If you're a young lady here, like nobody in, nobody in this world can afford you because you are bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and like if someone says to you, oh, well, you just think yourself, and you just say, yeah, absolutely right, because I'm priceless. I cannot be bought. I am bought with a price, and I'm so valuable. I'm so worth. But this young, rich ruler did not understand his value and his worth. Number two, the religious and the world system demeans people to be worthless and valueless. This world is going to give you what you want. But it's going to demean you, and it's, going to, and it's going to tell you, you are not worth, you are not valuable. You are not valuable. I think when Jesus looked at people, and he would say, come and follow me, it was so transformational, because the way Jesus spoke to people was just with so much value, and so much love, and so much worth, that, that people understood that, and this is the third thing, is that people will follow value, those who value them, and those that they value. I think if we want to understand what discipleship is in the church, we have to understand God's value for people, God's love for people. You know, I was driving here this morning and I was thinking, I was just thanking the Lord. I said, God, I thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have allowed me to pastor here, to pastor these people, because I don't deserve it. I really don't. I don't deserve the least of it. And I say this, I don't want to sound, I don't want to say religious, 
But the longer you follow Christ, the more it becomes clear to you that you really don't deserve like anything that you have been given in your life, that God has been so kind and so gracious. And somebody may look at you and say, oh man, you're following God. But it's like the more we follow Christ, the more we discover how much value he is, how much value Jesus Christ has. And this is what Judas never understood. People are going to follow value. And this, if we want to disciple people, we first have to understand their value. If I could understand, if, I, if I'm having a conflict with somebody, and it happens all the time, we live in a world of fallen personalities. Charlie Brown said it this way. He said, I love, I love all of humanity. It's just people I can't stand. You know, it's just like we live in a world of brokenness. And, and we, it's like, I want to love everybody. I want to be a you know, philanthropist. But, but it's just like people in my neighborhood, I can't, I can't stand them. And for us to understand a person, if we want a disciple, if we want to have a church of discipleship and mission and community, when we talk to people that we don't know, we want to first ask God for just a revelation of the value that they have in your eyes. And when we do that, then that's going to be everything that we say and everything we do is going to be so different. Um, the weight of precious metals determines its value. When you look at gold, have you ever picked up a gold bar? I haven't. But um, like if you ever, like, you know, I guess they're really heavy, right? One gold bar is like how much? I don't know how much it weighs. Does anybody know what a gold bar weighs? It's pretty heavy, right? Uh, 100 pounds? Depends the size of a gold bar. Yeah, the gold bar. <laughs> Depends on how big the gold bar is. It's a heavy bar. It's pretty heavy. And, then, and it's like, why? Because, you know, things that are precious are pretty weighty. And, you know, like the word glory can be translated in the Bible as weight. Something that's weight, that has weight to it. You know, when the anointing of God comes in, like, you know, during our simple worship, the anointing of God is here. And there's a weight to it. And it's not something mysterious and like, you know, what is it? Because that's Gnostic and that's Eastern mysticism. And that's the, that has no place in the church. The anointing of Christ is, the anointing in the, the church of Christ is really the, the, the value that God has put on people when they gather together. And there's a sense of corporate value. I love coming to church because it's the only place in the universe that I can go that's going to reflect to me who I am in Jesus Christ. The weight of Jesus' love for this rich young ruler outweighed all the commandments he endeavored to obey and all that he ever accomplished. There's something that's weighty about his love. And you know what the weight of his love is? It's his blood. Jesus poured out every drop of blood. You know, and you know, it's funny, and I'm not superstitious, but try during, your, try during the day, especially today, it's Halloween, think about the blood of Christ for more than 10 minutes. And I guarantee your phone's going to ring. Oh, you're going to remember stuff that you're supposed to do. You know, like you're going to have you're going to be interrupted because this is the greatest. This is the greatest um, currency in the universe. And it's the love of it's, it's the blood of Jesus Christ. And it was poured out for us. And this outweighs everything. And this is the weight of God's love for us. Number two, the strength of Christ's love. The weight of his love is his blood. The strength of Christ's love. And I love this. Strength is what we discover in our soul when we realize our value and the immense treasure of the one who values us. Do you remember when the woman comes in and she anoints Jesus' feet, breaks an alabaster box over Jesus' head, pours the whole thing out? You remember that the alabaster box was something you could only break once, and it was a family heirloom, and it was something that could never be broken or recapped. Let's pour a little bit on Jesus, and okay, next time. But that was just a once and for all thing, and it was... It was something that just was so valuable. And as, as she pours the whole thing on Jesus' head, on Jesus's head uh, Judas and the other disciples just said, what a waste. This could have been spent on the poor. You could have bought something with the, for the poor with it. And then Jesus, Jesus is astounded. It's astounding. 
that, that people did not understand the value and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And he says, you know, the poor you have with you always, but not me. You don't have me with you always. And I think when we look at the light, when we look at the love of Christ, we discover something that's called strength. And strength is a word that describes the ability to lose the lesser of importance and be without it because of a greater possession. Strength means I, I can afford to lose things in my life. You know something, loss is coming. I mean, I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to make us depressed here, but, you know, if you're not in a place of loss right now or if you've not gone through loss in your life, it's on its way. And I don't want to scare you, but I want to tell you that when the loss comes, when you're losing something, when you feel like, you know, the bubble of your control in your life breaks, loss is coming. And, and strength is, is a word that it means that, like, when I'm losing, I have something that's greater in my life that I cannot lose. And that's my salvation. That's my joy in the Lord. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's his word. It's the body of Christ. It's something that I cannot lose. It's amazing. I want to look at it. I want to just contrast the rich young ruler's um, response by Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 29. Luke 5, 27 through 29. Matthew, the tax collector, meets the love of Christ. He's there. Jesus comes and says to him, follow me. I love the power of the words of Christ. How can, we get, how can we get away from the Bible? How can we get away from the power of his words? I think that if we can just sometimes in being, get alone, close the door, get on your knees and open your Bible and just read it aloud just to yourself, to the angels, to, you know, to the atmosphere. Because the power of the word of God is just so amazing. Jesus says, follow me. And guess what happens? Matthew leaves it all and follows What's the difference? Because I think that Matthew discerns Christ. He discerns who Jesus Christ is. Uh, I remember we went through a church split years ago at another place. And I remember just people's, people's attitude about the church and this and that. And things were wrong. And I just remember looking, thinking, you know, talking with my wife. You know, there's this opportunity for us to move on. And, and the Lord spoke to me. And he said, you know something? The church is valuable. The church is purchased by his blood. This is a valuable thing. Don't forsake it. It's something that, that in the midst of the body of Christ, there is brokenness. <laughs> there's broken people. There's sinners. But, you know, there's a big, amazing, loving Christ that when we look to him, it gives us this strength and this ability to look at people not after their flesh. And here Matthew is meeting a man that is not looking at him after his flesh. And he says, you know something? All of this means nothing. Paul said the same thing. Just a short conversation with Jesus on the road to Damascus. I, I leave it all. I think when you meet Christ, when, and this is a, sometimes it's a progressive thing in your life, sometimes it's an immediate thing. There are things, you look at the things that you used to fight for, the beggarly elements, I think the King James uses, the beggarly elements in this world. You look at it, it's like, oh, it's a beggarly element. It's just so poor compared to Christ. Matthew leaves it all and follows. And guess what he does? He has a big reception in his house and he invites all of his tax collector friends. It's really cool if you read that. And all these tax collector friends come and they, they have this party for Jesus. And, and the Pharisees, like they always are on the outside. The Pharisees are all the, always on the outside. The Pharisees are the guys who try to, through all of their life and through their efforts and commandments and everything, try to be on the inside, on the inside, the inner circle of, of what God is doing. But they're always on the outside. No matter how hard they try, they're always on the outside because they don't understand who Christ is. So the opposite of strength is fear. And this brings us to the third thing I want to mention this morning. 
Um, 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. We look at a lot of scriptures in this church. <laughs> I love the Bible. 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. It says this. It says this. And I love the Apostle John. He was the last of the living apostles, and he was, fight, he was dealing with something that's very prevalent today, and that's what is called Gnosticism. A very interesting study if you ever want to look at it sometime. But he says this, By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because just as that one is, also so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear includes punishment. Don't let verses that you and I know ever shut you off from what God wants to show you fresh about that verse. You know, that the Bible is the only book that the the more we dig into it, the more we, we discover its value and its riches. There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear includes punishment. And the one who is afraid has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Every time you read the in the Bible the command, love God, always just remember... Loving God means I'm just responding to his first love towards me. Loving God means I'm just responding to God's love towards me because I have no love in me for God. That's why I needed to be born again. That's why I need to be saved. First love means it's love that Christ loved us. I want to read something to you, um, and I think it's just one of the most beautiful points about about sanctification and holiness by a, by a, a, a writer... In the late 1800s, his name is Girdlestone, and he wrote this in his book of um, Old Testament synonyms. He wrote, synonyms. He wrote this, and I'll explain it in a second if, it's a, if, it, if, you, if it goes over your head. The terms of sanctification and holiness are now used so frequently to represent moral and spiritual qualities that they can hardly convey the idea of positive or, I'm sorry, the idea of position or relationship as existing between God and the person or the thing that's consecrated to him. Yet this appears to be the real meaning of the word. What it means here is is that holiness and perfection are not words that are moral and meaning first, but rather refer to our position in Christ, our connection with God. For the New Testament believer, our position and connection is with Christ's love. We are in Christ. In 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 the epistle of Ephesians, one of the greatest epistles of the New Testament, we read, um, 80 plus times that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. We're not in our problems. We're not in sin. Somebody may say, well, they're living in sin. Well, if they're born again, Christ is in them. And it's going to be only a moment of time before they're dragged out of that or God takes them home because we're in Christ. Grace is not something that just tolerates um, crazy living. Grace is the most responsible, most proactive aspect of God's nature that when when we believe and trust in the grace of God, grace is going to chase us down and, and in Proverbs chapter 20, I mean, in Psalm 23, it's going, to, it's, going to, it's going to follow us. It's going to search us out. It's going to find us and it's going to grab us because grace is responsible. And this is why we can be perfected in the love of Christ because Christ, you know, holiness. And so for the Hebrew, the, the Hebrew mindset, when, when the word perfect was used, it was always referring not to moral perfection first. It was referring to a holistic sense of health. Okay, so and we can see this illustrated in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 6, verse 36. Are you following me? Am I going too quick? All right, Luke chapter 6, verse 36. Be perfect as, as my heavenly Father is perfect, right? Remember that verse. 
Sometimes in the New Testament, um, things are repeated, but it's interesting to see the context and how things are used um, in that same um, observation and documentation of the situation. Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Jesus says, be, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. But then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, same situation. But guess what it says? Be merciful as my heavenly Father is merciful. So what is that telling us? Perfection in God's eyes means that I am a whole person, that I've been healed, that there's something that I'm a, I'm a healthy thinker, that I can show mercy and not give people what they deserve because there's something in my life that's stronger than my sense of justice and my sense of vindication and my sense of that, I, that I've, got, I've got to fight this. I've got, I've, got, I've got to fight for my rights. Jesus lived on another level. And when we understand the strength of Christ's love, we're perfected in it. And this is what perfection means for the believer, okay? And I'm going to finish up with this, is that holiness and perfection is something that relates to our union with Christ. It means that I'm in Christ. As a matter of fact, when you study the word anointing in the Old Testament, beautiful word, anything, if something was, was, if something was dedicated for the service of God, like, a, like, a, like this pole that they would use to light the candles or to light the lamps in the tabernacle, if that was dedicated to the Lord, if that was something that was dedicated only for the service of God, whatever that, that, whatever that touched, it sanctified. Whatever that the anointing oil touched in the tabernacle was now only and only for the service and the use for God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That something could be so dirty and so broken, and yet when Christ touches it, it's holy and it's, and it's set apart. Prim, uh, primary example, Jesus goes and he touches a leper. The law says, don't touch lepers, run away from them. They're dirty. They're going to get you sick. Run away, like get, get away cause, and, 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 and have them separated from society because they're going to kill people. Jesus sought that out and he put his hand on people and he healed them because what was in Christ was so much greater than the sickness that was in the, uh, in the leper. Wholesomeness and this word, I, I like words. The word holy and the word wholesome it are, are in English language, have the same, have a same etymological root. And it means this, is that something that's holy means that something that is, is something that's whole. It's, it's healthy. It's perfect. And that's where we get the word from, wholesomeness. Here's the application. The opposite of holiness is not evil, but, but fragmentation. Yes, evil is a result of the lack of holiness. It's a system that's, that's driven against the nature and the character of God. It's it is charged. But I'm not understanding what holiness is that when Christ touches my life, when there is a understanding of who Jesus Christ is, a wholeness comes into my life. And I no longer need the beggarly elements of the world. I don't need to be, I don't need to be fraudulent and, and collecting taxes like Matthew was. I'm following Christ. The opposite of holiness is not fragmentation, is, is not evil, but it's fragmentation. And fragmentation characterizes the lives of people that don't know the love of Christ. And this is what our world is today. We, uh, we live in an imperfect world. It's broken. It's falling apart. It's, it's corrupted. And, and, and our whole life can be just centered around me trying to control all the marbles that are just under the laws of gravity and just going in different directions. And the fragmented lives of people are held together by their... They create environments. So we try to create an environment where it's going to hold everything together so things don't fall apart. And this could be my career. This could be my possessions. 
This could be my relationships that I'm dating or that I'm married or I have good friends or I have a good family. It could be money. These are the things that we use to try to hold all the marbles together without the love of Christ. But when we, when we understand the love of Christ, when we, are, when we are like Levi who meets Jesus and he says, come and follow me, that all just all that falls away. And it's no longer me trying to control my world because I'm strengthened, I'm perfected, I'm, I'm healed, and I'm entering into an understanding of holiness that I'm beginning to be, I'm not pursuing holiness like you gotta chase it down, like you gotta be holy. Yes, it does say that, but when it, does, when it says that, understanding holiness is understanding the love of Christ. And when we begin to understand the love of Christ and his love towards us, it changes the way we love, it changes the way we value things. And the things that are valuable to the world just no longer look valuable. And it's okay if I start to lose. It's okay if marbles start to drift because God is in control because he loves me. He loves me. And when God punctures our manufactured bubble of control, allowing trials and trouble, remember this, that the love of Christ pulls it all together. And when Jesus calls us into loss, focus on the weight of his love. Focus on that gaze of Christ, that gaze of Christ. Think about who he is and understand the value that he puts on your soul. By the way, be around people that value you as Christ values you. Don't be around toxic people. Don't be around people that, that, that are going to just tear you down because you're looking for a sense of significance. Look at Christ. Draw near to him. And as we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And, and how many understand what I'm talking about? As we begin to understand who Jesus Christ is, there, we begin to value ourselves in a different way. And, and the cheap meat of the world no longer is attractive. It's gross. And I want to chase after Christ. And I want to ch- chase after his, his treasure and his communion. Because communion with Christ is truly the greatest, greatest treasure that we, can, that we can have in our life. Amen. Let's just close in prayer. God, we come to you. And we're just so thankful that Christ came to us. That someone came to us, shared the gospel with us. Someone came and said to us, you're more valuable than that. God, we thank you, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, while we we were yet without strength in Romans 5, Christ died for the ungodly. Thank you, Lord. And that love is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit in Romans 5, 8. Thank you, Jesus. And I just pray today, Lord, that if there's someone here that that may be struggling with their value or their significance or the security that they have in Christ. Maybe they're struggling with their strength. Well, that we can look away from it all and just see Christ and him lifted up. If you're here today, and I don't know, I mean, this is Texas. Everybody uh, seems to be a, a Christian, but maybe you're here today and Maybe you don't know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you don't know who he is. Maybe you believed in him. You went to church, but you don't know him as your personal Savior. Just believe on him today. Just say yes to Christ. Say yes to God. And just buckle up because it's going to be an amazing ride. It's going to be an incredible, incredible life of faith adventure. Thank you, God. We pray that you bless each family that's here. Uh, We ask you, Lord, that you would remind us of these words during the week as we get up tomorrow and face face the, the things that are on our lists and our responsibilities. In Jesus' precious name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen.